The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So uh, next week we'll have small groups, and we're working our way through the awakening factors. And remember this fourth foundation that we're studying this fall, it's really the place in mindfulness practice we're not just learning how to be aware, to connect and see clearly the body, or to see the mind, to get a sense of how the mind is. It's really this fourth foundation of mindfulness is really about how to participate in balancing the mind by learning how we can pay attention in ways that starve or weaken the hindrances, and how we can be aware in ways that feed and strengthen these wholesome awakening factors of mindfulness, and then the three energizing, investigation, energy, and joy, and the three calming or tranquilizing factors, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. And it's, you know, once the hindrances, those habits of mind that hinder the continuity of present moment awareness, when they've been abandoned, which we talked about in the first half of the course, how do we abandon the hindrances as opposed to endlessly tormented by wanting, by aversion, ill will, not wanting, dullness, sleepiness, restlessness and worry, or doubt. That's a pretty good description for how it is for most of us mo- most of the time, right? We're kind of pushed around by the establishment in our minds, the habits in our minds of these hindrances. And there are different ways to talk about the difficult qualities of mind, the ten defilements, the three poisons. Right? So the Buddha talked about it. But they're just overlapping maps. You know, just different expressions of delusion or ignorance, basically. So once we've abandoned the hindrances, that's a pretty exalted state or unusual, extraordinary state of mind. A mind that isn't being hindered, weighed down, by these hindering qualities, these oppressive qualities of mind. And then, it's almost like we have to learn a whole new vocabulary, because mostly what we're doing in meditation and daily life is just like, like uh, I was an elementary classroom teacher, some of you are imagining that, or you raised kids, you know, it's a little bit like that's our mind. You know, we've got to keep our eye on these guys over here, and the, and that, and that person just doesn't want to do any work, and this person's really hurting, and they need to, they need a lot of support, and and it's endless. Like the image the Buddha used is, some of you know this simile of the cow herder trying to get a big group of cows down a narrow path when the crops are ripe on both sides of the path, and the farmers are not going to like it if the cattle topple traps through the ripe crops because it's going to ruin the field. So they're 
wildly tapping the cows this way and that way to keep it on, keep the cows on the narrow path. And that's how it is when we're managing our hindrances. But we develop our skill, we're persistent, we listen to the instructions, we learn how to starve the hindrances so that they fade away. And then there are moments, right, and this was, uh, if you weren't part of the small groups last week, one of the questions I asked, and you can reflect on it right now, do I know the mind, this mind, absent of the hindrances, do I know that experience? Am I familiar? Because we definitely, I'm assuming, are familiar with the experience of my mind overrun by the hindrances. Remember the really provocative, provocative image that's used in the tradition of those little vines that start to grow in the big trees and slowly, over decades, encompass the entire tree. The vines drop their roots to the ground, and they, they have a way of surrounding the branches and main trunk of the original tree until there's nothing to be seen of the original tree anymore. Like the banyan trees some of you have seen in Asia, even Hawaii, there's a couple really big ones. So, do we know that experience when the hindrances are gone? And then it's like, all that we've learned in our Dharma practice right now isn't helpful because it was mostly about how not to get lost or relate improperly to the hindrances. But now there aren't any hindrances. The mind is free of the hindrances. And now we have a whole new vocabulary like, okay, let me begin to sense what remains when the mind is free of the hindrances. Or oh, there's present moment awareness, there's this investigative part of the mind that is interested, like wisdom, it's interested in causes, like how does this beautiful mind continue, and how does it weaken and fall back into its old habits, right? So that's investigation, is sort of like, what's an appropriate thing to pay attention to now? What should I pay attention to? How should I pay attention? And it's kind of checking out cause and effect, basically. Can't do that without mindfulness, but with mindfulness, present moment awareness, because keeping the present moment in mind, then investigation really sees the results. Like if I pay attention to this, what happens? Have you noticed like you're, you've got some calm in your meditation, and then there's something moving. It could be like, oh yeah, I gotta, I gotta plan that out. Or it could be some sound or some movement in the room or whatever it is. And it's like, that's investigation. It's like, I wonder what happened. I wonder if it's okay if I think that through. <laughs> you know? And investigation said, oh, you know, just connecting the dots. Okay, don't do that. That's, that doesn't help. So investigation is really uh, applying what it knows about what's helpful and not helpful, and learning more about what's helpful and not helpful. It's developing its understanding of what's helpful and not helpful, what's skillful and unskillful. And that 
that next quality of energy, persistence, is <clears throat> to whatever degree the mind senses how useful it is to do this investigation, like, it really helps. It really helps, because the more I'm, uh, I'm interested in what's sustaining and deepening the concentration and what's weakening it, I'm able to, to sustain it better. So energy's like all in. I'll, I'll, I'll persist because I see it has value, right? So a lot of times we think of energy as, oh, I, you know, I gotta make energy. I mean, I have to make effort. But it's really, it's discovering that and keeping in mind, you know what, it really matters, so I'm gonna stick with it. Just like some of you are gardeners, or Sino Tim and others maybe are musicians, or whatever your craft or your interest might be. And you know if you, hopefully you've learned that if I just persist, good things happen. If I stick with it. Like as long as what we're sticking with is productive, and it's investigation that figures out what's helpful and not helpful, right? And then the energy, the steadfastness, the persistence is like, okay, wisdom, investigation is really seeing this is helpful, so I'm going to keep hitting that note. I'm going to keep doing, relating in this way, paying attention in this way, because I've seen. And investigation just go away, it's still refining like what is actually skillful about that and how to be even more skillful and how to tease out what isn't helpful. So these are the energizing, they're active qualities, right? And in a way, if you do the mindfulness investigation application, like that persistence, that I'm all in, this is helpful. And there are a lot of impulses to do other things because we're programmed, you know, the mind is programmed in so many different ways, tugged in so many different ways, but we persist because there's some sense that right now it's beneficial and it's beneficial down the road. And when we persist enough, you know, it's like uh, this great quote, I'm not even sure who it's from, I did write down who, uh, where I got this. Maybe it's me. <laughs> and it's talking about rapture. At first, each moment of effort meets resistance, right? Because initially we say, oh yeah, I think this is helpful, but all our habit energies are not used to persisting in this way, so there's a lot of pushback. So at first, each moment of effort meets resistance, the inertia of habit. But after continuous persistence, Inertia has burnt off, and commitment, showing up, has immediate payoff. Connecting and sustaining, um, yeah, see the wholesome results directly. It's not theoretical. So there's part of, uh, you know, sometimes in the tradition, Buddhist tradition, they call this launching energy. It takes this sort of, uh, capacity or willingness to burn away the inertia. Like my mind isn't 
used to persisting in this way, but I'm really going to persist. I mean, hopefully you notice that even tonight, every time you sit, the mind wants to do what it normally does. Think about this, think about that, worry, plan, doubt, should I really be spending my time meditating like this? You know, Like if you're going to meditate, don't think about whether you should be meditating. <laughs> but that's, we, we do that a lot. It'd be better to go do what you want to do. But when we meditate, we want to remember, oh yeah, mindfulness, that is awareness of the present moment, it's keeping the present moment in mind, remembering this is being known, whether you're using a particular meditation anchor, or whatever is predominant, moment by moment, right? And then, because there's some continuity present moment awareness, there's a capacity to investigate what is actually skillful and unskillful because the results of being skillful are seen only in the present moment and the results of being unskillful, relating unskillfully, are only seen in the present moment. So investigation can happen only in the present moment. And then the heart, that ardent heart, when it sees the value of this investigation, it can persist. Oh, I'm really learning something about my mind. This is going to have long-term positive implications. I'm going to persist. Of course, the mind doesn't say that, but that's that movement of persistence, of energy, effort. It arises because the payoff of investigation is beginning to be intuited. Like how much there is to learn, how valuable this learning is. I really want to see and understand the mind. And what are we, what are we particularly, particularly observing? How the mind plants seeds for stress, how the mind can plant seeds for release. Right now. Right now. Planting seeds for stress for release. It's just subtle. And to the degree the mind does that, the first big payoff, like I said, it doesn't, we don't wait for 40 lifetimes before we get payoff. There's payoff that comes with joy, that's the next factor. <coughs> joy is that lightness, that absence of friction, that buoyancy, that comes when the mind begins to unify. That unification means because of the persistence, the effort, all aspects of the heart and mind are really behind the mindfulness and investigation of how to be skillful, how not to do things, relate, pay attention in ways that cause things to get tight, how to relate in ways that loosen the screws. And when we get enough of that momentum, joy arises because of the unification, the coming together. Remember I mentioned like even with the absence of the hindrances, there's some joy. It's a pretty wonderful state when the mind, like check right now, is there any ill will active in the mind, in the heart? Pushing something away? 
Is the mind caught with some kind of wanting? Wanting to be home in bed actively. I mean, you may want to be home in bed, but is your mind actively wanting to be home in bed? Wanting to win the lottery? Is the mind indulging in sleepiness or restlessness, identified with it, spinning with doubt? So what is the mind that is relatively unhindered? And the Buddha described it as the, you know, in these kind of potent ways. It's like having been ill, but now healthy again. Or having been in prison, having been enslaved by, you know, oppressive forces, but no longer in prison, no longer enslaved. Having been in a dangerous place, but no longer in that dangerous place. So that's, we have to, like, we know the toothaches, I don't know if people remember, Thich Nhat Hanh has this simple, useful instruction about, we have to learn to notice the non-toothaches. We definitely notice our toothaches, but do we notice the non-toothaches? So, you know, if your mind was really overrun right now with desire, you know, you met somebody and you're just totally entranced by the person, or whatever it might be, you would notice, you know, it would be obvious to you probably, totally caught up, but it feels worth it, <laughs> spinning, spinning. But when we're not like that, we don't, we haven't developed the capacity, we haven't trained ourselves to notice the absence of that lust, the absence of that hate, that absence of the dullness, the absence of the restlessness. And that's really useful because that's how we get a better and better sense of what joy is, the absence of oppression in the mind. Do we notice that? Sometimes when it's really strong we do, or if we're prompted we do. But we want to get really, just like, a, when we have a vocabulary, I think I mentioned this a while back, for joy, we can start to notice it more, you know, the different kinds of joy. The link I put uh, for the people online, in case anybody came in again, I'll just, uh, came in late, I'll put it one more time. And for those here in the room, I'll send it out in the next email. But it's just a page from uh, Joseph Goldstein's book on mindfulness, the Satipatthana, that we've been studying these last, uh, since the winter. We did body in the winter, and then uh, mindfulness of feeling tone in the spring, some of you were in that course, and mindfulness of mind in the summer, and now mindfulness of mental qualities. Remember, this mindfulness is really about how we can affect the mind by how we can abandon the hindrances and balance and develop the awakening factors by how we pay attention. The first three is just like how to be mindful of the body because we have so much baggage, so much projection that we have to tease out before we can even be aware of the body as it actually is. Same with feeling tone. We're so programmed to take feeling tone personally as if it matters, you know, each pleasant experience, each unpleasant. So we have to deprogram ourselves. 
And we did that in the spring with mindfulness of feeling time. And mindfulness of mind is just realizing we can be aware of something relatively subtle, like how's the mind doing? What's the particular shape or texture? Is it an expansive mind or a constricted mind? You know, is it a greedy mind or a mind free of greed? So we're not trying to fix the mind, we're just trying to learn how to be aware of how the mind is. But in the fourth foundation, we're really trying, like, in how we pay attention and what we pay attention to, how to affect the quality of the mind. That's what we're doing with the fourth foundation. And part of what really helps is how to use joy. Because the first three, you know, mindfulness, investigation, and this steadfastness, this persistence of energy, really, you know, from a more ordinary point of view, or something that I do. And, and to a large degree, the other factors of awakening, the seven altogether, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity, so the other four, are kind of the natural, lawful unfolding of the first three. So joy is like when we're steadfast enough, burning away inertia, burning away our habit energies to be superficial or to be flitting about, wandering here and there with our thoughts and attention, and we really persist, then the whole mind-body comes together, and, there's, and that is experienced subjectively as joy. And so the handout, um, this one page from Joseph Goldstein's wonderful book on mindfulness, The Five Grades of Rapture. So this is just from the tradition. And I'll just, as you all go through this, but notice what your mind does with this, because, oh, I don't experience that. But I'm pretty sure people experience rapture. But what's really, I think, a kind of tragedy is we don't have a vocabulary to even be interested in it. Like, we don't know how to even be interested in joy. And the different gradations, and the different causes for joy, and what, what makes joy go away? Now, you would think, as human beings who like joy, by definition, that over the course of our life, the wise people in our life would have pulled us aside and said, you know what? you should become a really good student of joy. It's important, because joy, happiness, is the proximate cause for concentration, a more powerful coming together of the heart and mind, more sensitivity, more clarity. And it's that samadhi, that coming together heart and mind, that is the cause for insight, and it's insight that's the cause for release, letting go putting down what can be put down. So this is not like an incidental part of spiritual path, uh, the path. We really, everybody needs that happiness. I gave an example, I forget if it was for the Buddhist studies class not too long ago, of just the time, I think it was my first longer three-month retreat at Insight Meditation Society. And I was in the middle, you know, of the three-month retreat, I've been practicing with a lot of sincerity, and, and I just remember uh, on my way to the meditation hall, walking into the dining hall, 
And uh, just the pleasure of seeing those, it wasn't everybody, but there was just a couple handful of people in the dining hall doing their walking meditation, and some people were sitting drinking tea. It was in the evening, and there's probably like one more sit, uh, the later sit, you know, that would go to 9.30 or something, 8.45 to 9.30, something like that. And we were just about to begin that. And, and my heart just opened, you know, just a kind of a natural, spontaneous feeling of belonging and feeling of love, which is pleasant. And the pleasure of that wholesome emotion of metta brought the mind into balance. It was like the missing ingredient. And the mind got really concentrated very quickly, right? And it was, it was just an interesting experience of how, oh, the mind had a lot of momentum, but it, it was a little out of balance. And this is often the case for us that the missing ingredient in our lives and in our meditation is joy. And we think, well, God, there's no joy here. But it must, it, it's much more likely that we don't know how to recognize the joy. And of course, joy develops when it's recognized. And so, I don't know um, if it was helpful, the instructions, but the fifth instruction in mindfulness of breathing is to train your heart, to train your mind as you're breathing in, to experience joy. And then for whatever that duration of the exhalation is, can you keep joy in mind? And it doesn't help for you to say to yourself, there ain't any joy here, <laughs> right? Because it's like, even being interested in joy means the mind has to generate some sense of what joy is. Like to be looking for joy, you have to know what joy is. And the thing is about the mind, nama rupa, the body and mind, is that it's, you know, we, we have this sort of fixation on materiality, but it's much more a constructed universe than we can imagine. So if we're actually sincerely interested in joy, then it's like a wormhole, there's going to be some joy there. It may be faint, but then that's doubt. Like how to keep it in mind, how to keep the interest in mind. And just the more we do it, the more we'll have that sense. Like heaviness is not joy. Absence of heaviness may be joy. Being fixed, not joy. Flow, maybe joy. So we really get a sense of, because we know the opposite of joy so well, <laughs> we're experts. So, what is the diminishing of that? That's why I gave those similes that the Buddha uses for the abandoning of the hindrances. Like with greed, um, I think greed is uh, likened to being in debt. Now, some of you, I did, paid off our school loans. <laughs> and it felt nice not to be in debt anymore. You know, you paid off a car, or you paid off something. So there was, there was that oppressive feeling of being in debt, and then it went away. Or, some of you have gone backpacking, 
carrying your 40-pound back, backpack, and you stop for lunch, you take it off, and it's like you can jump. Have you noticed, like, it's like, if you've worn it long enough, it's, it's really a little trippy when you take it off. Your body feels different. You know, initially it feels different when you put it on, like, oh, this is not the body I know. But then it becomes normal after a number of hours, and you take it off, and you feel different. Same thing with the buzz of the refrigerator. After a while, you're not even impressed by it. Initially, when it turns on, you know, and you're sitting there, it's like, oh, God. But then it becomes the new normal. But then when it goes off, it's like, oh, the mind's not oppressed anymore. So, being out of debt, being sick and then no longer sick, these are really ways to, to get a sense of joy, because joy is more, and as it is often the case in how the Buddha taught and, and how it is for us just with our mind and body, the whole spiritual trip is much more about what's not there than what, we, what is there. You know, getting the golden chalice, you know, I got it, the spiritual treasure. But it's more like shedding, abandoning. Remember the image the Buddha uses for the whole path is the rotting of the riggings and sails of a boat, a ship that's been pulled up, dry dock, sitting in the rain, in the sun, and over time just the rotting away. You can think of the weather as sort of the illumination of wisdom and awareness, and it just wears away what needs, what's extra, not helpful. So, back to the five gradations, five grades of rapture. The Buddha spoke of five grades or level of rapture or joy. The first is called minor rapture. When this is present, there is a lifting of the spine. Right? You know that we all have that, like, whoa. You bought apple pie? <laughs> you know, it's like, we're going to go dancing? And the, the whole body shifts, you know, kind of the drudgery at work, and then our best friend calls, or sends us a text, I got tickets for, you know, whatever, your favorite group, are you free? It's like, there's that lift, upliftment. This is minor rapture. Goosebumps, trembling of the body, that's all the minor rapture. Second is called momentary rapture which is felt as a sudden jolt of energy, like a flash of lightning. It might feel like when an, uh, in an elevator we're in, <clears throat> suddenly makes a short drop. At one point in my practice, Joseph writes, I was doing lying down meditation, and as a jolt of this momentary rapture became strong, I was suddenly thrust into an upright position. Yeah, you see that sometimes if you're sitting with your eyes open, you know, someone will get a little bolt of rapture and their, their body would just shift in a way. It's not always the case when people move, <laughs> but sometimes. The third kind is a piti, is the Pali word for rapture or joy, is called wave-like or showering rapture. This manifests as thrilling kinds of sensations coming over the body again and again, like waves lapping on the shore. 
Sometimes with each wave, the feeling of rapture becomes stronger and stronger. The fourth kind of rapture is uplifting rapture. When this kind of piti is present, it feels like the whole body has risen up into the air and is no longer touching the ground. If we're seated on a cushion, uh, it's as if we are seated on a cushion of air and are floating up and down. Or sometimes when you're walking, everything is really spongy. It's like really light, oh floaty sort of feeling. Uh, there was a period of, of one of my retreats where it's like there wasn't there wasn't any sort of physical normal physical sensations. It was just like a cool breeze, a really subtle, beautiful, cool breeze. That was the experience of the body. You know, even not just the meditation, just sort of sometimes moving around the meditation retreat center at him for periods of time. And this is just the when the mind has dropped these hindering tendencies. They're they're not uprooted, but they're far in the distance. This is what it's like to have a mind and body. See, we're so sure that the mind and body, like the wounds, the unfinished business, the bad stuff that happened to me, my terrible regrets, this bad knee I got, the fact that I haven't eaten good food in a while. I deserve to feel miserable, physically, emotionally, mentally. But then when we have some of these experiences of rapture and we learn to pay attention, see them in ordinary ways, like pay off our debt, and we're really curious of those, oh, this is what that feels like. That something was oppressive and now it's not there. Can you notice that? Or you had a big project and you got it done. And there's that feeling of, that's not weighing me down anymore. But we don't, you know, we don't talk to our friends, hey. I mean, we do a little bit, but we, we don't actually make it an object of awareness. Or what is that experience of no longer being oppressed by that big project I had to do? How does that, how does that exist? in my subjective experience right now. There's one more. <clears throat> the fifth kind of piti, or rapture, is called pervading rapture. Mahasi Saida, so he's one of the most influential monks of the last uh, century in Burma, described it this way, quote, a sublime feeling of happiness and exhilaration filling the whole body with an exceedingly sweet and subtle thrill. And of course, it makes sense that when we have an experience of rapture, so much of the, uh, you know, the activity of our mind um, is trying to joker. So when we feel really good, all of that endless activity in my mind to look for a good feeling can go offline because I've got a good feeling. So it removes ill will from the mind when we have some joy and it really sets up this, this sweeter, 
more settled sukha or ease, the ease of contentedness, which leads to tranquility, which is the next factor of awakening. So next week I'll start talking about the tranquilizing, the last two weeks, the tranquilizing factors of tranquility. And to really get that, that kind of pervading sense of being settled, of body and mind, happiness of body and mind, don't really need to go anywhere. Now we know this in a grosser level, like if you've ever had a really good massage, or you did the sauna, Minnesota sauna thing, and then you jumped in cold water, and then you did the sauna again, and then you jumped in cold water, and then you were sitting, drinking a nice beverage of your preference, and you had that, I feel really good, I don't need to do or go anywhere. That pervading sense of happiness of body and mind. That's tranquility. That's the beginning of tranquility. It's really, that it's, uh, characterized by I don't need to move my body and I don't need to move my mind to like this or to that because there's a lot of contentment with the bodily and mental experience right now. So there's that absence of movement so we generally call that feeling really settled, really tranquil. And you, could, you might even be able to sense some degree of that tranquility right now. The mind and body happy, content with here and now. And this, you know, like I said, these last four of joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity they kind of just naturally follow. If we really emphasize as a practitioner what mindful, what does it mean to be mindful, to keep the present moment in mind, so that that wisdom aspect of investigation can learn a thing or two that it hasn't learned yet about what it is to be skillful and what it is to be unskillful, so that, that effort can get activated that inspired like, oh, there's something to do in the present moment. There's some learning that would be good to learn. And then that, when there's enough momentum of that, joy arises. And it's really helpful because of the, it's like the opposite of a panic attack. There's a feedback mechanism. Being aware of joy is joyful. So it really, feeds back on, ourself, on itself. So we want to know, we want to remember to be interested in joy and tranquility and stillness and equanimity. And, uh, you know, what we'll talk about next week, you know, in terms of the, these first uh, four of mindfulness investigation, energy, and joy, is like, how do we feed them? I'll just share from one of the suttas, the discourse, you know, the Buddha talks about, there are mental qualities that act as a foothold for mindfulness, for investigation, for energy, for joy, right? There are mental qualities that act as a foothold for these factors of awakening, 
to foster appropriate or uh, inappropriate attention to them, right? Appropriate attention leads to the feeding. Not paying attention or paying attention in an inappropriate way, like a dismissive way, will lead to it not developing. So what do we have to pay attention to to grow, to develop mindfulness? And one of the things that's talked about in the tradition is the absence of remorse. Like really noticing that my relationships with other people are harmonious. So I really have the privilege to turn inward, to be in the present moment, because I didn't leave a mess over here, or a mess over there, or that person isn't seeking revenge on me because I screwed them. I've been careful, I've been full of care in how I've been living my life, so when I've got some time to sit, I'm not haunted by all the messes that I've left unfinished, unaddressed. So that freedom from remorse, or they call it in the tradition, the bliss of blamelessness, really is one of the causes, and to know that, like, oh yeah, I have it's sort of like, I have the, earned the right to be just with my experience. The kids are put to bed, or they're grown-ups, you know, living their own life, did my best as a parent, washed the dishes, or whatever, I can sit. So we're not haunted by anything. The proximate cause for investigation is what I've been talking about, realizing there are relatively skillful and unskillful ways for the mind to be showing up in this moment, and it really behooves me to know that, what's skillful and unskillful. It's kind of like if we're in a place where there's a lot of danger, and over the course of our lifetime we've made a lot of terrible mistakes, it's like, it's really good to know, yeah, don't do that, don't touch this, don't mix those two things, you know, and we, we know how to be in this place. So, what's blameworthy, what's blameless, what's gross, what's refined, what contributes to ignorance, getting obsessive, getting lost in thought, what supports the continuity of awareness, To what do we pay attention to to strengthen energy? We keep in mind the value, like that there is something to do with my energy. There's something that can be gotten through this persistence. It's like when you're gardening and you're weeding, it's like, yeah, if I keep watering, I keep weeding, they're going to be nice tomatoes. That inspires us. Or I keep playing this, practicing, I'm going to get good at this song. So that, just it's sort of keeping in mind the lawfulness of the universe. When the mind applies itself in this way, in a skillful way, from what it's learned from the investigation, good stuff happens. And then in, in the tradition, the, the way we feed rapture, mental qualities that act as a foothold for rapture. So basically, 
keeping rapture in mind, which is that fifth instruction with mindfulness of breathing. One trains oneself breathing in, experiencing joy. One trains oneself while breathing out, experiencing joy. And I really encourage people to um, experiment by using the word, like, or use that whole phrase even periodically. Just what the Buddha said. Training myself, breathing in, experiencing joy. And you can shorten it then to experiencing joy as you're breathing out. Experiencing joy, breathing in. And it's like the words, for one, will support the concentration because it takes effort to repeat that phrase. Or just even the word joy you can use when the mind's more settled and it doesn't need sort of the bigger instrument. But it's like the word, even the word joy, it's just, it's used to point the attention toward the experience. It's not enough to repeat the word joy as you breathe in and then as you breathe out. We're really aiming. And so for all, all four of these, really get good at strengthening mindfulness, that quality of investigation, that steadfastness of effort, and noticing joy and keeping it in mind. And if you can't do the subtle, go back and go back. Because it's like always, you can always go back to mindfulness. And if, if in your trying to figure out what mindfulness is, you're obsessed by all the messes in your life, well, maybe stop meditating and clean up some of the messes in your life so when you get another chance to sit, you won't be haunted. Because, you know, if I've been bad all day and not done what I'm supposed to do, it's probably not going to work for me to go meditate later in the day. It might be better to take a couple weeks or even a couple years as best I can to clean up my life. Because taking care of that business of living in harmony, taking care of our responsibilities, making amends when we've caused harm, that you can't avoid that work. You can't meditate that away. I'll just end with this and then we'll have a little time for a few comments or questions. This is a really famous example from the tradition about just the, how, the, how the path unfolds. This is uh, one of the most famous, or probably the, the most famous female supporter of the Buddha, uh, Nan Nan. She was a laywoman. Um, and she once asked the Buddha if she could have permission to give the nuns and monks some things to help them in their lives. Like when somebody is staying back to take care of a sick nun, they can't go out and collect their meal. She was wondering if she could bring food for the people that are caretaking the sick monks and nuns so they don't have to go collect their food. And can I give them bathing cloths so when they're bathing in the river, they don't have to be naked. They can have sort of a, a smock or something around them and scrub themselves down without being immodest or something like that. So anyway, the Buddha said yes, but he asked why. And of course, the Buddha was intuitive and he knew that. 
she would have something really wonderful to say. This is what Vasaka said. When I remember my acts of generosity, I shall be glad. When I am glad, joyful, I will be happy. That's that contentedness. Contentedness. When my mind is happy, my body will be tranquil. That's settledness. Nowhere to go, nothing to do. I shall feel that pleasure. When I feel the pleasure, my mind will become steady and still. That will bring the development of the spiritual faculties, faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, wisdom, the spiritual powers, and the factors of awakening in me. Because awakening can't be stopped when everything comes into balance like that. The mind, the heart, opens to what needs what it needs to see and open to. It isn't waiting for you or me to do the right thing. It's waiting for that beautiful balance. Then everything opens up. So we have a little bit of time. If there are any questions online, you can raise your digital hand. And anybody in the room, any questions or comments about rapture or these first energizing factors of awakening that come to mind? Looks like Freda has one. Freda, go ahead and unmute yourself. Yeah, um, so is there, sometimes when you're, you're in a retreat or sitting and you get this really nice kind of, everything feels good and smooth and is that, and then you, then you start to notice it and like it. Now is that an early stage of joy or is that, something else, you know, before you get attached. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it sounds that way. I mean, it, it's really, it's just interesting, like, the words we use to describe this. That's what I meant. We don't, we haven't really developed this internal vocabulary and perceptual mechanisms to experience the joy, let alone to articulate it in a, you know, like in a setting like this. So what would be interesting, Freda, is like where the seeds of that lightness and that smoothness, because I think I know what you mean, that smoothness is a word that I might use too. It's like something evens out in our experience. So smoothness kind of makes sense as a word to use. Yeah, thanks. Anybody else? Anybody online have any comments or questions before we wrap up for the night? Yeah, Rocky? Hi, Mark. Um, my question is about um, what causes that state of joy. So, say some sort of craving and then me going ahead and fulfilling that craving, which could cause joy. And uh, um, if there is a distinction between a joy joy that comes through like, oh, I really want pizza and I go get pizza and now I'm like feeling joy versus, um, you know, sitting in meditation and arriving and kind of 
cultivating different causes and conditions. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, I'm glad you asked that question because now this will be our whole week. Instead of looking at the inner joy, we'll just try different types of pizza and etc. Because, you know, the, these videos go viral of little kids getting what they like and they can't contain the joy, right? They just like, I mean, I can't even imitate it, but just when you see a child tripping over joy because they got what they wanted, and it's really fun to see. Or another place you see these in the viral videos are like they film uh, somebody who's been away for a long time and then meeting their dog who's missed them. You know, and the dog, you know, you see the, the back end of the dog can't really contain itself. Because the, the energy wants to move in. There's, because when we get what we want, the mind forgets everything else. Even something like having the pizza that you wanted that moment, the mind is pretty unified. Now, there's a lot of greed involved, but in the moments of anticipation, like you're about to get it, that there's, the mind is kind of overrun by the happiness. And it's not worried about getting older or getting fat because you're eating pizza all the time or you know, all those things. It's just unified around the idea this is going to taste good. I've wanted this. Now I have it. This would be great, right? I always I remember as a kid, I, I had a really hard time sleeping the night before we left for vacation. You know, it's just like, yeah, I'm going camping. So I think there is some similarities. The, the problem is that what does the mind do? It has a momentary wave of rapture, and then it has a stomachache. And then a little bit later, it wants ice cream to balance out the salt of the pizza. And then a little bit later, it want, you know, so it, it doesn't, it's a trap. But the thing about joy that comes from the work of the heart, or kind of developing the heart and mind, is it, it, it only leads to good results. There's no, uh, no negative consequences to that kind of rapture. It just leads inward to more development of the heart and mind, which just makes us a more skillful, better human being. So let's put down the words. Take a couple of breaths together before we finish our evening. Feel what's moving. Thanks for coming everyone, nice to be with everyone. So next week, week seven, small groups, and we'll start looking at tranquility and concentration. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.